Chapter Five of the Afghan Wars, eighteen thirty nine to forty two and eighteen seventy eight to eighty. Part One The First Afghan War by Archibald Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Five The Beginning of the End. The deceptive quietude of Afghanistan, which followed the sharp lessons administered to the Doranese and the Gil's eyes, was not seriously disturbed during the month of September 1841, and Macnaughton was in a full glow of cheerfulness. His services had been recognized by his appointment to the dignified and lucrative post of Governor of the Bombay Presidency, and he was looking forward to an early departure for a less harassing and tumultuous sphere of action than that in which he had been labouring for two troubled years. The belief that he would leave behind him a quiescent Afghanistan, and Shah Sujah firmly established on its throne, was the compliment to a proud and zealous man of the satisfaction which his promotion afforded. One distasteful task he had to perform before he should go. The home government had become seriously disquieted by the condition of affairs in Afghanistan. The secret committee of the Court of Directors, the channel through which the ministry communicated with the Governor-General, had expressed great concern at the heavy burden imposed on the Indian finances by the cost of the maintenance of the British force in Afghanistan, and by the lavish expenditure of the administration which Macnaughton directed. The Anglo-Indian government was urgently required to review with great earnestness the question of its future policy in regard to Afghanistan, and to consider gravely whether an enterprise at once so costly and so unsatisfactory in results should not be, frankly, abandoned. Lord Auckland was alive to the difficulties and embarrassments which encompassed the position beyond the Indus, but he was loath to admit that the policy of which he had been the author, and in which the home government had abetted him so eagerly, was an utter failure. He and his advisers finally decided in favour of the continued occupation of Afghanistan, and since the Indian treasury was empty, and the annual charge of that occupation was not less than a million and a quarter sterling, recourse was had to a loan. Macnaughton was pressed to effect economies in the administration, and he was specially enjoined to cut down the subsidies which were paid to Afghan chiefs as bribes to keep them quiet. Macnaughton had objected to this retrenchment, pointing out that the stipends to the chiefs were simply compensation for the abandonment by them of their immemorial practice of highway robbery. But he yielded to pressure, called to Kabul the chiefs in its vicinity, and informed them that thenceforth their subsidies would be reduced. The chiefs strongly remonstrated, but without effect, and they then formed a confederacy of rebellion. The Gilzai chiefs were the first to act. Quitting Kabul, they occupied the passes between the capital and Jalalabad, and entirely intercepted the communications with India by the Khyber route. Macnaughton did not take alarm at this significant demonstration, regarding the outbreak merely as provoking, and writing to Rawlinson that, quote, the rascals would be well trounced for their pains, unquote. Yet warnings of gathering danger were rife which, but for his mood of optimism, should have struck home to his apprehension. Pottinger had come down from the Kohistan, where he was acting as political officer, 
bent on impressing on him that a general rising of that region was certain unless strong measures of prevention were resorted to for some time before the actual outbreak of the gilzais the afghan hatred to our people had been showing itself with exceptional openness and bitterness europeans and camp followers had been murdered but the sinister evidences of growing danger had been regarded merely as ebullitions of private rancour akbar khan dost mohammed's son had moved forward from Kaloum into the bamiyan country and there was little doubt that he was fomenting the disaffection of the gilzai chiefs with some of whom this indomitable man who in his intense hatred of the english intruders had resolutely rejected all offers of accommodation and preferred the life of a homeless exile to the forfeiture of his independence was closely connected by marriage the time was approaching when sale's brigade was to quit kabul on its return journey to india macnaughton seems to have originally intended to accompany this force for he wrote that he quote, hoped to settle the hash of the gilzais on the way down if not before unquote. the rising however spread so widely and so rapidly that immediate action was judged necessary and on october ninth colonel monteith marched towards the passes with his own regiment the thirty-fifth native infantry some artillery and cavalry details and a detachment of broadfoot sappers how able resolute and high-souled a man was george broadfoot the course of this narrative will later disclose he was one of three gallant brothers all of whom died sword in hand the corps of sappers which he commanded was a remarkable body a strange medley of hindustanis gurkhas and afghan tribesmen of diverse regions many were desperate and intractable characters but broadfoot with mingled strength and kindness moulded his heterogeneous recruits into skilful obedient and disciplined soldiers broadfoot's description of his endeavours to learn something of the nature of the duties expected of him in the expedition for which he had been detailed and to obtain such equipment as those duties might require throws a melancholy light on the deteriorated state of affairs among our people at this period and on relations between the military and civilian authorities broadfoot went for information in the first instance to colonel monteith who could give him no orders having received none himself monteith declined to apply for details as to the expedition as he knew quote, these people unquote, the authorities too well he was quite aware of the danger of going on service in the dark but explained that it was not the custom of the military authorities at kabul to consult or even instruct the commanders of expeditions broadfoot then went to the general cotton's successor in the chief military command in afghanistan was poor general elphinstone a most gallant soldier but with no experience of indian warfare and utterly ignorant of the afghans and of afghanistan wrecked in body and impaired in mind by physical ailments and infirmities he had lost all faculty of energy and such mind as remained to him was swayed by the opinion of the person with whom he had last spoken the poor gentleman was so exhausted by the exertion of getting out of bed and being helped into his visiting-room that it was not for half an hour and after several ineffectual efforts 
that he could attend to business. He knew nothing of the nature of the service on which Monteith was ordered, could give Broadfoot no orders, and was unwilling to refer to the envoy on a matter which should have been left to him to arrange. He complained bitterly of the way in which he was reduced to a cipher, quote, degraded from a general to the Lord Lieutenant's head constable, unquote. Broadfoot went from the general to the envoy who, quote, was peevish, unquote, and denounced the general as fidgety. He declared the enemy to be contemptible, and that as for Broadfoot and his sappers, twenty men with pickaxes were enough. All they were wanted for was to pick stones from under the gun-wheels. When Broadfoot represented the inconvenience with which imperfect information as to the objects of the expedition was fraught, Macnaughton lost his temper and told Broadfoot that, if he thought Monteith's movement likely to bring on an attack, quote, he need not go and was not wanted, unquote. Whereupon Broadfoot declined to listen to such language and made his bow. Returning to the general, whom he found, quote, lost and perplexed, unquote, he was told to follow his own judgment as to what quantity of tools he should take. The adjutant general came in and, quote, this officer, after abusing the envoy, spoke to the general with an imperiousness and disrespect, and to me, a stranger, with an insolence it was painful to see the influence of on the general. His advice to his chief was to have nothing to say to Macnaughton, to me, or to the sappers, saying Monteith had men enough and needed neither sappers nor tools, unquote. At parting, the poor old man said to Broadfoot, quote, If you go out, for God's sake clear the passes quickly that I may get away, for if anything were to turn up, I am unfit for it, done up in body and mind. Unquote. This was the man whom Lord Auckland had appointed to the most responsible and arduous command at his disposal, and this not in ignorance of General Elphinstone's disqualifications for active service, but in the fullest knowledge of them. Monteith's camp at Bukhak, the first halting place on the Jalalabad road, was sharply attacked on the night of the ninth, and the assailants, many of whom were the armed retainers of chiefs living in Kabul, sent out specially to take part in the attack, although unsuccessful, inflicted on Monteith considerable loss. Next day, Sale, with Her Majesty's 13th, joined Monteith, and on the 13th he forced the long and dangerous ravine of the Cord Kabul with sharp fighting, but no very serious loss. Although Sale himself was wounded, and had to relinquish the active command to Colonel Denny. Monteith encamped in the valley beyond the pass, and Sale, with the 13th, returned, without opposition, to Bukak, there to await reinforcements and transports. In his isolated position, Monteith remained unmolested until the night of the 17th, when he repulsed a Gilzai attack made in considerable strength, and aided by the treachery of friendly Afghans who had been admitted into his camp. But he had many casualties and lost a number of camels. On the 20th, Sale, reinforced by troops returned from the Zermatt expedition, moved forward on Monteith, and on the 22nd, pushed on to the Tezin Valley, meeting with no opposition, either on the steep summit of the Hooft Kotol, or in the deep narrow ravine opening into the valley. 
the Gilzais were in force around the mouth of the defile, but a few cannon shots broke them up. The advance guard pursued with over-rashness, the Gilzais rallied, in the skirmish which ensued, an officer and several men were killed, and the retirement of our people unfortunately degenerated into precipitate flight, with the Gilzais in hot pursuit. The 13th, to which the fugitive detachment mainly belonged, now consisted mainly of young soldiers, whose constancy was impaired by this untoward occurrence. Macnaughton had furnished Sale with a force which, in good heart and vigorously commanded, was strong enough to have effected great things. The Gilzai chief of Tezin possessed a strong fort full of supplies, which Denny was about to attack, when the wily Afghan sent to Major MacGregor, the political officer accompanying Sale, a tender of submission. MacGregor fell into the snare, desired Sale to countermand the attack, and entered into negotiations. In doing so, he committed a fatal error, and he exceeded his instructions in the concessions which he made. Macnaughton, it was true, had left matters greatly to MacGregor's discretion, and if, quote, the rebels were very humble, unquote, the envoy was not disposed to be too hard upon them. But one of his firm stipulations was that the defences of Koda Buksh's fort must be demolished, and that Ghul Muhammad Khan, quote, should have nothing but war, unquote. Both injunctions were disregarded by MacGregor, who, with unimportant exceptions, surrendered all along the line. The Gilzais claimed and obtained the restoration of their original subsidies. A sum was handed to them to enable them to raise the tribes in order to keep clear the passes. Caudebouche held his fort and sold the supplies it contained to Sale's commissary at a fine price. Every item of the arrangement was dead in favour of the Gilzais and contributory to their devices. Sale, continuing his march, would be separated further and further from the now diminished force in Kabul, and by the feigned submission the chiefs had made, they had escaped the permanent establishment of a strong detachment in their midst at Tezin. Macnaughton, discontented though he was with the sweeping concessions which MacGregor had granted to the Gilzais, put the best face he could on the completed transaction, and allowed himself to believe that a stable settlement had been effected. On the 26th, Sale continued his march, having made up his baggage animals at the expense of the 37th Native Infantry, which, with half of the sappers and three guns of the mountain train, he sent back to kubar e jubar there to halt in a dangerously helpless situation until transport should be sent down from Kabul. His march as far as Kutisung was unmolested. Mistrusting the good faith of his new-made allies, he shunned the usual route through the Purwandura by taking the mountain road to the south of that defile, and thus reached the Jugdulluk Valley with little opposition, balking the dispositions of the Gilzais, who, expecting him to traverse the Purwandura, were massed about the southern end of the defile, ready to fall on the column when committed to the tortuous gorge. From the Jugdulluk camping ground there is a steep and winding ascent of three miles, commanded until near the summit by heights on either side. Sale's main body had attained the crest with trivial loss, having detached parties by the way to ascend to suitable flanking positions, 
and hold those until the long train of slow-moving baggage should have passed, when they were to fall in and come on with the rear-guard. The dispositions would have been successful, but that on reaching the crest the main body, instead of halting there for the rear to close up, hurried down the reverse slope, leaving baggage, detachments, and rear-guard to endure the attacks which the Gilzeis promptly delivered, pressing fiercely on the rear, and firing down from either side on the confused mass in the trough below. The flanking detachments had relinquished their posts in panic, and hurried forward in confusion to get out of the pass. The rear-guard was in disorder when Broadfoot, with a few officers and some of his sappers, valiantly checked the onslaught, but the crest was not crossed until upwards of one hundred and twenty men had fallen, the wounded among whom had to be abandoned with the dead. On October 30th, Sale's force reached Gundamuk without further molestation, and halted there temporarily to await orders. During the halt, melancholy rumours filtered down the passes from the capital, and later came confirmation of the evil tidings from the envoy, and orders from Elphinstone, directing the immediate return of the brigade to Kabul, if the safety of its sick and wounded could be assured. Sale called a council of war, which pronounced, although not unanimously, against a return to Kabul, and it was resolved instead to march on to Jalalabad, which was regarded as an eligible point d'appui, on which a relieving force might move up and a retiring force might move down. Accordingly, on November 11th, the brigade quitted Gundamuk and hurried down rather precipitately, and with some fighting by the way, to Jalalabad, which was occupied on the 14th. Some members of the Gundamuk Council of War, foremost amongst whom was Broadfoot, argued vigorously in favour of the return march to Kabul. Havelock, who was with Sale as a staff officer, strongly urged the further retreat into Jalalabad. Others, again, advocated the middle course of continuing to hold Gundamuk. It may be said that a daring general would have fought his way back to Kabul, that a prudent general would have remained at Gundamuk, and that the occupation of Jalalabad was the expedient of a weak general. That a well-led march on Kabul was feasible, although it might have been difficult and bloody, cannot be questioned, and the advent of such men as Broadfoot and Havelock would have done much toward rekindling confidence and stimulating the restoration of soldierly virtue, alike in the military authorities and in the rank and file of the Kabul force. At Gundamuk, again, the brigade, well able to maintain its position there, would have made its influence felt all through the Gilzai country and as far as Kabul. The evacuation of that capital decided on, it would have been in a position to give the hand to the retiring army, and so to avert at least the worst disasters of the retreat. The retirement on Jalalabad, in the terse language of Durand, quote, served no conceivable purpose except to betray weakness, and still further to encourage revolt. Unquote. While Sale was struggling through the passes on his way to Gundamuk, our people at Kabul were enjoying unwanted quietude. Casual entries in Lady Sale's journal during the later days of October afford clear evidence how utterly unconscious were they of the close gathering of the storm that so soon was to break upon them. Her husband had written to her from Tazine that his wound was fast healing, and that the chiefs were extremely polite. 
she complains of the interruption of the mails owing to the gilzai outbreak but comforts herself with the anticipation of their arrival in a day or two she was to leave kabul for india in a few days along with the macnaughtons and general elphinstone and her diary expresses an undertone of regret at having to leave the snug house in the cantonments which sale had built on his own plan the excellent kitchen garden in which her warrior husband in the intervals of his soldiering duties grew fine crops of peas potatoes cauliflowers and artichokes and the parterres of flowers which she herself cultivated and which were the admiration of the afghan gentlemen who came to pay their morning calls the defencelessness of the position at kabul had long engaged the solicitude of men who were no alarmists engineer officer after engineer officer had unavailingly urged the construction of barracks in the balahissar the repair and improvement of the defences of that stronghold and the occupation of it by our troops the cantonments on the plain northward of the city would have served their purpose fairly as residential quarters in peacetime if the balahissar which in case of need could have accommodated all our people had been repaired and adequately garrisoned but the fatal errors were made of yielding to the shah sujah's objections to the british occupation of the balahissar and of making a pretence of rendering the cantonments defensible by surrounding the great parallelogram with the caricature of an obstacle in the shape of a shallow ditch and feeble earthwork over which an active cow could scramble the enclosed area was commanded on all sides by afghan forts which were neither occupied nor destroyed the commissariat stores were actually located in a fort outside the cantonments altogether the communication with which was commanded by a fort held by the afghans in all essentials of a defence position the kabul cantonments at the beginning of the outbreak were simply contemptible sir william macnaughton and his political staff occupied the mission compound an annex of the cantonments general elphinstone had his quarters in the cantonments sir alexander burns lived in the house in the city opposite to the treasury which was in charge of captain johnson and several other officers resided in the suburbs brigadier shelton a brave and experienced soldier but of curiously impracticable and ill-conditioned nature was in camp with a considerable force on the sea of sung hills about a mile and a half from the cantonments with the kabul river intervening with shelton's troops and those in the cantonments general elphinstone had at his disposition apart from the shah's contingent four infantry regiments two batteries of artillery three companies of sappers a regiment of cavalry and some irregular horse a force fully equipped and in good order in the balahissar shah soojah had a considerable if rather mixed body of military and several guns end of the first part of chapter five